0: Hey, Jesse. Hey, Chris. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Hello. <laughs> yeah, Chris is here, too. Yeah. Oh, he has professor glasses uh, on. Yeah, he's kind of he's amazing.
2: doing some yeah. research for the show we're about to record right now, so we'll <laughs> let him we'll let him get back to that. <laughs> yeah. uh, Dennis, we're going to take a, a, a bit of a detour, is that correct?
0: Well, yeah, in a way. We've been walking through the general instruction of the Roman Missal little by little, but we got right up to the Liturgy of the Eucharist, and... You know I have Haniitis, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Which is not an actual disease, but it's a an enthralling intellectual obsession with a fellow named Jean Hani, H-A-N-I. It probably isn't actually a disease. Well, it could be, I suppose, mental illness, maybe. But what uh, <laughs> what do we
1: know about him, Chris? Oh, I'm not done reading his bio on the back. Oh, okay. So he was uh, born 1917, died in 2012. He was a uh, teacher.
0: In Amiens, how does you say it, Amiens? Mm-hmm. Amiens, one of the great uh, French cathedral towns. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. He uh, was influenced, he, let's see, wrote his PhD thesis on the influence of Egyptian thought upon Plutarch.
0: Right, which doesn't sound too relevant to the Eucharistic prayer, does it? But he no, was a it certainly doesn't. professor of comparative religion. Yeah, that's what it and so, and But also a very serious and Orthodox Catholic. And so you see that come up in his work without watering down Catholicism.
1: Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, in the end, these, these him and guys like him, they, the, uh, well, m- my take is that, uh, you know, modern Catholicism and religion, people that, yeah, what does this have to do with anything? And these guys sort of fill in that sort of natural foundation of kind of man's religious instinct. And in this case is sort of sac, his desire to offer sacrifice. This is not a thing foreign to humanity. This is what if it's not common to you, you're the exception to the to the rule out of the whole history of uh, mankind, basically. And he helps to shore up that. Is that right, would you say?
0: Yeah, that's right. And you can see from his lifespan, born in 1917, he died in 2012, so he lived a long time. But his heyday, you know, his intellectual maturity would have been in the liturgical movement right around the time of Vatican II. And so he's not talking about the Second Vatican Council because some of these things were written before. But he sees this concept of sacrifice, especially the masses of sacrifice, starting to fall apart, and he wants to write about it in light of everything he's learned about sacrifice, the Old Testament, the New Testament, what he's learned uh, from other religions, and how Christianity fulfills all that, and why God would even have sacrifice at all, because I think part of the reason I wanted to do this is because we're talking about the Eucharistic prayer, and we say it's a sacrifice, right, and people will fight over this, oh, it's a sacrifice, it's not a sacrifice, going to Mass doesn't really look like Golgotha, you know. There's nobody on the altar being nailed to anything. There's no literal blood. There's no screaming and suffering and pain. And yet we say that somehow these are equivalent. And this is part of the challenge, I think, for any Catholic is to realize how is the Mass a sacrifice? It's a feast. It's We got that down. It's a meal. Yes, it's a sacrificial meal. But what is the actual sacrifice and why would God choose to uh, – to fulfill it this way.
1: Now, can I ask you just before you get into this, right? So what you've just described there, you know, about his mass sacrifice and not, you know, people, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, this was a big question. Is it a meal, is it a sacrifice? But you're reading this this, uh, John Honey with uh, 21 year olds, right?
0: Yeah, or I have some freshmen in my class actually.
1: Fresh okay, eighteen-year-olds. So, and and how would you just des- how would you describe their openness and receptivity to him and these questions and whatnot? Why isn't eight- so an eighteen-year-old is interested
0: in this? Well, I don't know. I mean, I assigned it for the syllabus, so they have to be interested in it. <laughs> Maybe your students have
2: mnemonitis. <laughs>
0: That could be. That could be. And I hope not for their sake. But it's actually, you know, it's a hard class. This is an upper level class, even though some freshmen are taking it. We're talking about the inner workings of sacrifice. But I think people have an intuition, even at 18, especially at a place like Benedictine, that the Mass is a sacrifice. That's like a a test question for them. You know, they cherry pick. What do they call it in Scripture? You have your proof texts, right? And people want to know how biblical you are. I think there's a there's sort of like proof theology ideas for orthodoxy. You, if you don't say mass is a sacrifice, you're not orthodox enough. And so when people are actually hearing, okay, yeah, mass is a sacrifice and this is why, it's not only reassuring what they already believe, but now to have a deeper knowledge, it's not just a proof text, but actually a deep understanding. And I think people do enjoy that. This is in the sacramental aesthetics class, actually, which is interesting, right? Because it's a history of theology of beauty. But if you take this view that beautiful things reveal their ontological reality, which is something every student I've ever had can immediately <laughs> answer back. I always say, beautiful things reveal their what? And they'll go, ontological reality, because they've already said it <laughs> 20 times. Um, then what, on- what is that ontological reality that's being revealed mm. at the Mass? And that's what this mm. is about, the content of that revelation and not just the method of that revelation. You look like you had a question, Jesse. Yeah,
2: well, I was just wondering. Um, so, like, you have honeyitis, and I'm wondering if Hani had like Garenzitis. You know, like, was he <laughs> was he influenced from those early liturgical movement figures? And do do we know any of that? I guess.
0: Well, I don't know too much about him personally, but when you look at his footnotes, he does not refer to church documents. He does not refer to Garenzay. They're two um, historians and theologians of. Um, Liturgical history, basically, a rel- history of religions. Like, that's his thing. But he combs out through all of them the essentials and then sees how Christ fulfills them all.
1: You know who he reminds me of? And it, uh, I'm interested now to know if he would have known uh, Odo Kazel.
0: Odo Kossel, yeah. Because
1: he was, uh, again, a contemporary. It was he and uh, I think Gardini started that Ecclesia Oron series in 1918. Uh, They were obviously Germans, but Odo Kazel's thing was looking at Egyptian religions, you know, like ISIS and Osiris and Mm -hmm. uh, these uh, mystery rites. So they seem to have have a lot in common. But anyway, I don't know if they ever knew each other.
0: Yeah, I mean, these people are alive at the same time. They're writing about the same stuff. Maybe they had, you know, ran into each other at conferences or something. <laughs> I, all I know is, you know, Jean Hani was totally obscure, right? He was not one of these people. He was not a monk. He wrote in French. This stuff that we're looking at was translated only recently, right? So it's just coming into the English language world now, even though they've been influential for a long time. He's written a bunch of these little books. One's on church architecture. That's how I first heard about him. One is on liturgy. One's on the the... the theological reality of the artist and what an artist does as a sharer in God's divine activity. So there's just a very intriguing and evocative and stimulating little books that are not that hard to read if you concentrate. I mean, it's not it's not a Clancy novel, right? It takes a little work. But it, uh, well, sometimes Clancy novels take a little work if you've ever read any of those. But it's no harder than reading The Lord of the Rings, I'll tell you that. So <laughs> just put it that way. So this whole book, and what's the name, what's the title of the book, Chris? You have it there.
1: Uh, it is The Divine Liturgy, uh, Subtitle: Insights into its Mystery.
0: Yeah, okay. So Divine Liturgy, and I think many of us, and he doesn't quite say this, but many of us live in a post-Trent world, right? So we have proof texts, real presence, yeah. Immaculate Conception and Merit, yeah. If the Calvinists disagree, well, then they're wrong, and I have to believe the opposite. And we do think very much of real presence. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. That's That's awesome, right? The, that God transforms bread and wine into the body and blood, soul, and divinity of, of Christ, and then we get to consume that. Awesome. But you see, that's the top-down part. His book is very much about the bottom-up part. Like, what are we actually doing so when that happens, um, it's, it's real? And, you know, we talk about efficacy and priests being ordained and having powers we don't have. All true. But he takes it two or three levels uh, deeper. And that's what I found really fascinating. You know, he starts with the Jewish notion of sacrifice because a lot of sacrifices in the Old Testament. And I know you and I have talked, Chris, about, is there actually like a chart somewhere (laughs) that explains all the sacrifices, the morning sacrifice? You have different kinds of sacrifices, grain, animals, blood, some are burnt, some are not burnt, some are holocaust, some are sacrifices of praise, Um, some are only offered by the high priest once a year. Um, you know, the Feast of Atonement Some happen outside the temple, some happen inside the temple It's very complicated So just say, well, like, sacrifices were not part of God's revelation of himself Is it's kind of silly thing to say um, So he does, we're not going to go through all of those But there are a lot of them But basically he gets on a few interesting points here One of them is immolation Immolation, which comes from the Latin word molere To grind, to be uh, ground up so in all of these things in the Old Testament would have been grind up grain, grind up grapes, grind up this or that, but you see how Christ's body would be ground up, so to speak, uh, later. Um, and I think we actually talked about one of these sacrifices a while back, but one of them was a bloodless sacrifice. There's just, they made these cakes or sort of breads out of oil and incense, and that's what was brought into the temple as the show bread. You guys know anything about the showbread, the face bread? It was the, it was the m- most uh,
2: perfect of all, like they bake a bunch of breads and that one was like the most perfect one, is that?
0: Well, they had to be without flaw, just like right. the animals, hmm. well, but they would well, bring the breads, the 12 loaves of bread into the Holy of Holies, right? Into the place where God's restorative presence was. And then it also had oil and incense uh, worked into them. Incense in the bread? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know if incense is poisonous <laughs> or, or hallucinogenic or what, but um, the breads would go into the Holy of Holies. And remember anything in the Holy of Holies in the presence of God was made holy. And then the priest would eat them on the Sabbath and then they would replace them every week. So you already have breads that are becoming the bearers of God's presence, even in a bloodless sacrifice. They'd
2: eat, they'd eat them every week. Like He'd bring enough in on... Because I thought he only went in on Yom Kippur.
0: Well, that's the the uh, high priest on that particular feast. Yeah, what do we have here? Showbread, face bread. Yeah. So, oh, you caught me out on a footnote I don't have. I'm anyway. sorry. <laughs> Jesse. But uh, the idea was they're consecrated and made holy, and they were the bearer of God's
1: oh. peace. But Dennis, is this goes all the way back to the mosaic. Uh, covenant and the instructions on the tent. Mm-hmm. Okay,
0: right, all right, right. So that one you, we don't think of sacrifice as being a grain offering quite so much, or if it is, it's kind of like, oh, we'll just give this grain away, um, so that we don't get attached to it. But we're talking about grain becoming this bearer of God's face, the face bread, or his, which is face, of course, this is a revelation of Himself. Um, and then there's a bunch of other ones. The Holocaust sacrifice that was that was a completely consumed. Um, but only after the blood was uh, drained out, so the life was separated from the animal. That's
1: a burning, isn't it? Yeah. Holocaust, I mean, burned up. So
0: they would be completely consumed by fire on, on the altar. And the idea was that the the animal would substitute for us because we couldn't actually get killed, you know. Well, how do you get us or the animal into the heavenly realm where well, they would burn it and the smoke would rise up into the heavenly realm? And that was how the the transcendent energy or life of the animal was um, given uh, up to the heavenly realm. But what the priest did before that was put his hand on the head of the animal to be burned, and he would be substituted, like his, his reality would be substituted for the animal. So they would be identified, the victim and the offerer would become the same, which should ring some bells for you, right? Where do we see that primarily?
2: We put, we, well, we put ourselves on the altar. We, we are victims on the altar at Mass.
0: Right. And we offer ourselves, yes. But primarily we do that because, because Christ did the that. capital V no. victim, Christ, <laughs> yeah. is, the, is the priest, right? He's the offerer and the one that's offered. And so that was the first step in sacrifices that you had to identify with the victim. And then the victim would be sent into the heavenly realm. And so that was one of these kind of sacrifices. There's lots of them. Um, one of the other better one, better known ones is the, uh, the scapegoat on Yom Kippur, the feast of the uh, expiation. And so the, the goat, one of the goats, would the, the high priest would confess his sins and the people's sins over the goat and then let, tie a scarlet ribbon to them, and then they'd take it over to a cliff and pull, push it off the cliff. And so the destruction of the goat was the one who was taking away the sins of the world in that case, or... Uh, so when you talk about taking away sins or on you day, we don't say goat of God, right? But mm. the, uh, the same idea is that somehow these things are carried and taken away by Christ uh, through its destruction. There's also a thing that happens later on, and this is good for Easter time and, you know, Holy Week. When Christ is being mocked, what do they, uh, what do they put on him? You remember the soldiers are mocking him and they put him in a crown of thorns? Well, yeah, but before – what garments the, they the put on him? Per, purple cloak? Yep, the purple cloak, and that's usually associated with the idea of royalty and his kingships, like the crown of thorns. But Honey makes the point that the word purple may be more like scarlet if you, in certain ways of interpreting the word uh, in Hebrew. And so he's actually wearing the garment of, of the scapegoat as well. So what is he? He's the bread of life. You have bread sacrifices. He's the victim in that sense, the paschal lamb. But he's also the one that takes away sins, and all these things are at work here. Now, if the animal is the one who substitutes for us, okay, that's all right. You know, it's a fairly close approximation. But you can see how Christ substituting for us would be a more perfect. If we identify with Christ and then we offer Christ to the Father as the victim, then we're going to have this Passover with him. And he makes the point that Passover was actually a sacrifice in some ways. You know, you had the lamb, and there was a public ritual at the uh, at the temple as well. We think of Passover as being the meal at home with the family, and it is that. But he makes the point that there's also a sacrifice at the temple, which is called the communion sacrifice, where the the victim is entirely eaten. There's no, it's not just burned like you you eat the whole thing. You don't give any to the priests. You just <laughs> eat uh, the whole thing at the temple. And so you see at the temple, but then also at home. This is so complicated.
1: <laughs> it's like I know, right, Somebody isn't needs it? to
0: put a chart together about all this.
2: I, Chris, I think we need to take his class. I think that's what we need to do. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it's hard
0: to do this, you know, in 25 minutes or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you have five minutes left, Dennis. <laughs> yeah. But think of it this way there are all this array of sacrifices that maybe or maybe don't have uh, the whole picture yet because Christ hasn't come. Some are bread. Some are destroyed, completely burnt up. Some are eaten. Some are takeaway sins. Some are a feast of communion where you actually eat the victim. And then Passover, you know, what's Passover about? I know you know this, Chris, but I know either one of you jump in.
2: Well, that was to spare um, the Israelites during that that final uh, departure from the um, Egyptians, right?
0: Right. Not only to spare them from death, but to spare them so, from death so that they could get to freedom. The promised land. Yeah, the right? promised land. So Passover literally is not just because they've been passed over by death, but there's a Passing from one place to the other, from exile to the Promised Land, and so Christ, of course, is the one who brings us from the Egypt of the fallen world and transfers us, or you know, brings us to the passage to uh, to the heavenly perfection. So all this Old Testament stuff, prefiguring, and then we have to kind of figure uh, it all out. And so, so what
2: you're saying is that this liturgy didn't just like fall into place, and then it's just a bunch of people saying, "Ah, we're going to do it this way because that's the way I want
0: to do it." <laughs> No, absolutely not, right? There's a long history of priestly offerings, and it's mentioned a couple times in Scripture. I'm not Baptist enough to know the exact citations, but it's like many were added to that day, including like a thousand priests, it would say, or hundreds of priests or so many priests. So there's very clearly mentioned by name in the New Testament that priests were part of it, and they would be people who understood uh, sacrifice very um, intentionally, right, and interiorly and really get it. So that's the background. There's all these sacrifices. And, you know, people argue whether they're efficacious or not in the Old Testament. But God says to do it. You do it. You offer something. But here's the inner working of sacrifice. Are you on the edge of your seat, Chris, Jesse? No, you're both leaning back. I'm you? about
1: to be. If I move in the chair, it squeaks, and then Jesse yells at mm-hmm. me. Oh, yeah, I
0: get yeah, real mad. Still. <laughs> and then Michael gets mad. You know how it goes. Yeah, you know how Michael is. Michael does a production for this. Podcast. Insert applause, Michael. Yeah, applause for yourself, Michael, right here. Ready? Go. Woo! I know I'm on the edge of my seat, DMAC. All right. Are you ready for the internal logic of sacrifice? You know the word, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sacer and right to be made holy. But the thing that got me really excited about this is the mechanism of sacrifice. So what he mentions is that there's a couple of things that work here. You have to be transferred to the heavenly realm. But you can't be transferred to the heavenly realm because you would die, right? So something has to substitute for you to be able to transfer you to the heavenly uh, realm. So he says the mechanism is this. The object or the being, the sacrifice, is is offered to God and becomes sacred through the rite, which integrates it into the realm of the sacred. Okay, so what, what part of mass are we talking about here? There are prayers and a rite that integrates a thing into the realm of the sacred. It's basically offered to God and is no longer part of its own, just mere mm-hmm. earthly stuff.
1: Was this the preparation of the gifts and the altar yeah.
0: or the offertory prayers? Absolutely, right? And then the being is identified with the one who offers it. So Christ takes his bread and says, this is my body, right? He says, I am this bread, just like the high priest would put his hands on the victim or a priest would put his hands on the, the goat or the bull or whatever and say, I am now you. You are now me. You substitute for me. So you've been entered into the heavenly realm, and now you're me. And then when the uh, being dies, it's been integrated into the heavenly realm, and it's you. And therefore, you have been integrated into the heavenly realm. So we're talking about Christ fulfilling all this, right? You identify with Christ. Christ identifies with bread and wine, those things are entered in the heavenly realm and then they're uh, transformed. And so the being or the object becomes the mediator between heaven and earth. Hmm. And Christ is that principal mediator between heaven and earth. And so that's, that's the inner working uh, okay. of that. Process. So if he's but the. We'll pr- take a pause here. Go if
1: ahead. he's the principal mediator, so are we sort of like uh, secondary and tertiary mediators?
0: Well, I think we fulfill it, but this is why you have to offer your sacrifice with Christ and as your baptismal okay. dignity, right? Okay. So we mediate together with Christ under his principal capacity for mediation.
1: Here, here's what's behind that question is, uh, I've been thinking about this. I don't think I've mentioned on the podcast though, but you know, when the priest elevates the host and he says, this is my body, uh, all of us initially think, and I think rightly, he's referring to the, the actual personal body of Jesus. But I've often thought that maybe another equally uh, valid interpretation is, is that his body is the church. And -hmm. that when he's showing that host, it's not just his own historical, now glorified body that's, you know, his own. But uh, this body, which is his, is now all of us. And so when he's saying, this is my body, this is the... Us contributing, identifying—how you said it, Dennis—identifying mm-hmm. with the uh, the sacred and being transformed into the sacred. So, that's that's why I was wondering if, if we're sort of like secondary or additional uh, mediators
0: because now we're part of His body. Yeah, he's the big uh, mediator, right? But we're we're grafted onto Christ or adopted into the body or however you mm-hmm. want to say it in baptism. So that you have to be a priest, even a layperson has to be a. a you know, priesthood of the baptized in order to offer sacrifice. You can't offer a sacrifice unless you're a priest. Mm. And so to be a priestly people means you get to offer yourself in sacrifice together with Christ. Well, just not, like you do really get to, you have to. That's well, your job yeah. description. <laughs> yeah, that you, if you want to be glorified, right? Because mm. the, the whole idea here is the victim substitutes for you because you can't be killed on the altar. Sunday mass, right? What a mess, right? Plus you wouldn't, it's not, it's not right. It's not literal, right? So you identify with the victim and then the victim takes your place, but that victim has been entered by consecration into the heavenly realm. So therefore it takes your place. It's in the heavenly realm. It puts you in the heavenly realm and it always has this mediating role because we can't die every Sunday, right? We can't die at Mass, literally. Well, this,
1: well, this reminds me of is in Cardinal Ratzinger's The Spirit of the Liturgy, when he's talking about the offerer and the offering, they're always distinct. And so yep. what was supposed to be offered, what God set up is this offering of the firstborn. But it was always represented by a lamb. And they were two distinct things until Jesus shows up, who is... Ident- the the firstborn son is the Lamb of God, and there's no longer any distinction. They are one and the same thing, and I guess that's the that's the kind of distinction and uh, divide that we're trying to overcome. Is that that host on the altar isn't
0: a representation of me, but is in fact me? Right. So the offering always is Christ, right? But he gave us something that we could actually do every day or every Sunday, which is You want to sacrifice my body? You want to identify with my body and offer it? Okay. Well, he's not going to be incarnate on earth every Sunday in every church around the world. He says, this is my body. I'm equating myself with this particular sacrifice. And you can offer that as, in a sense, the substitution, but the real effective, efficacious substitution. And so the meal and the bread and the wine and the victim, who is Christ, are the same, but in the mode there of of sacrament. Chris, taking, this is the that, key thing. Chris
2: taking that a little further, and I don't want to get super caught up in this, but I just think it's worth exploring a little bit. You know, we often say, you know, we're, we're the mystical body of Christ, like the church is the body of Christ. And and I think that translates really well with what you're saying. But then there's also the blood component. I'm, I've i never heard the, the blood of the <laughs> mystical church. You know what I mean? I never hear that being the language. It's always, you know, the mystical body. So I'm just wondering, is there a connection there with the blood? And may, maybe that's all kind of rolled in because we talk about, you know, species and all that type of stuff. But I, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody talking about the, the like lifeblood blood of the church. <laughs> yeah. you
0: know? Right, and that's probably equivalent to the Holy Spirit. But blood, biblically, blood is the life force or the animating vital principle or the soul, you know, of the body. And so the Holy Spirit, I would imagine, would be... Kind of the equivalent of that. And we'll talk about this, you know, we'll probably get one or two episodes out of this. But one of the points John Honey makes is there's a double consecration at Mass. First the bread, then the wine. Any guesses why? This is actually fairly well-known in certain circles. But why not bread and wine together? If you just want to turn them into the body and blood, just do one. Why one and then the other? And why a fraction right? And why do you break a little bit of the host off and put it in the chalice?
2: Well, isn't it just because that's what happened at the Last Supper? They were two separate things, mm-hmm. and there was a fraction?
0: Well, that is what happened at the Last Supper, but why did Christ do it that way? He could have said, here, have a burger and a Coke, right? Instead, he said, take this, this is my body. And then a separate part of the right was, this is my blood. Mm-hmm. I think
1: if I remember this rightly, the reason is because uh, – I think it's St. Thomas who says it's a symbolic sacrifice so that um, when you consecrate the bread and you consecrate the chalice, even though on the paten is body, blood, soul, and divinity, and even though in the chalice is body, blood, soul, and divinity, it's meant to sort of symbolize and represent the separation of body and blood. Mm -hmm. And
0: if you separate body and blood, what are you? Dead. Dead, right? (laughs) And how do you come back to life? You get your body and blood... Put back together again. Where does that happen liturgically in the Mass?
1: It's that uh, that breaking and the uh, the dropping of those called the fermentum into into the chalice. Kind of that reintegration uh, oh, and revivification. I, if yeah. you put it that oh, way. That's cool. awesome. Wow! So man. this is
0: not something most people see because the priest is doing it yeah. kind of close. I knew up. it existed,
2: but I I guess I never thought to ask. Wow, that yeah. is fascinating.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a whole mm-hmm. rite called the fraction rite, which is happening mostly while we're singing the. Lamb of God on you stay. So we don't necessarily pay a lot of attention. Maybe your eyes are closed at that point or whatever. But the priest takes the host, breaks it in half, right, to symbolize the breaking of Christ's body. Takes that little piece of the host and puts it in the chalice. And then the body and blood are reunited. And then what you have is this glorified body because it's been sent to the realm of the divinity in its in sacrifice. And then we get to eat the glorified flesh of God. In the ancient world, they would eat the glorified flesh of the animal because the animal had been sent into the heavenly realm and the animal's flesh became the bearer of divinity. But now it's actually the real sacrifice who is the second person of the Trinity, who's the true lamb of God, who's bringing us the real flesh uh, back to uh, consume so we can become it. I I wonder, too, uh,
1: sort sort of relative to that question I asked earlier about when the priest says, this is my body, more of an ecclesial reference. So... I think the history of this fermentum, of this fraction, is the pope would break off a piece, and it would be carried by acolytes to other churches in the city of Rome, and the the priest at this other church would put it into his own chalice, and and do the same sort of thing on an ecclesial level. Dennis, that you're describing that it it not only represents but causes the communion and re- revivification of the mystical body of Christ which is the church so it's not just the reintegration of Jesus's own body and blood but of his mystical body coming together in this uh, communion
2: that that makes sense cuz i always wondered why the fraction didn't happen when the priest says took the bread broke it. It would make sense that that's when he would make the right. fraction, but
0: right. And people used to do that back in the day, you'd have priests say this is this is my body and he would say, crazy broke it and they would they would do the fraction during the eucharist of prayer when they're not supposed to. But it for whatever reason it happens in that linear way first there's the death and then that violence done to him. I, one of the things Hani mentions is the Byzantine rite in the uh Eucharistic prayer, and this was when he wrote this a long time ago, so I don't know if they still, maybe they have Reformed practice, that they have the leavened bread in Byzantine churches, and they take the center of it and cut it out, and it's called the lamb, and they mark it with uh, X E Nike, or Christ the victor. And then they have this little tiny spear. It's like a little liturgical spoon, but except it's a spear, and then they spear the the lamb. <laughs> they actually put this little spear into it to actually make real. And we're going to talk more about the process of the right. <clears throat> but the making real is not just a passion play, right? There's something more because these rights are actually effective and, and accomplish what they do. And if you want to be have that accomplished in you, then you have to do what they do. And that's how you get into this notion of mystery religions. This is how you get into participation. You do the saving act of Christ that's coming in the form of a right so, the, you know, the end of this sacrifice stuff is if a thing is consecrated, it's sent to the heavenly realm, and it picks up the energy of the heavenly realm. Normally, you eat food and you get its vital force. You eat a carrot, you become you. You <laughs> eat a hamburger, you stay alive. But if you eat the consecrated beef, right, so to speak, that's been sent to the divine realm, then you are incorporated into the divine world because you are eating it and incorporated into it's divine power. So if, if good food, you know, can make you strong or healthy, divine food makes you strong and healthy and, and divine.
1: Well, I know I didn't know this when
0: I was 18. Or 21. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or I 31. don't know if my students know it now, but a lot of them did really well on the on the test, uh, right? <laughs> so... Uh, You see how Uh, Christ solves all this? You start rams and bulls and goats and pigeons.
1: Oh, it it, it really is good. Great food for thought. I mean, at any time of the year. And also as we start to get into the liturgy of the Eucharist, but especially during, you know, the Holy Week and the Good Friday and the institution of the Eucharist and the Mass of the Lord's Supper and all of the rest. I mean, this is, if you can kind of see through all of the uh, sacramental skin, uh, this is what you ought to be seeing into the depth. So
0: this is great. Like yeah, Holy thanks, Thursday. Dennis. This is great. Well, let me add one more thing. I know we're running late, but Holy Thursday is going to come up soon. We always talk about the institution of the Eucharist. Well, why? So that we could enter into the sacrifice. You know, Good Friday. Why? Because this is the the perfect offering of the victim. And then we have a quiet day, and then Sunday we celebrate the resurrection. This is what happens every Sunday. So uh, there's a lot of complicated inner workings here, and it's, for me, very fascinating. So You have trouble shutting me up, I realize.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you gave me the hook a minute ago, so I will take yeah. it. Yeah. Well, you lost me at uh, consecrated beef. So, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> but I immediately started thinking. I bet that's what Jesus had when he's flipping the tables over in the temple. I that beef that he had. Beef. Oh, as in like, what beef? He had, a beef? <laughs> yeah, oh, he had a beef with the temple. Yeah, he had a beef with the consecrated beef. Yeah. Anyway, that's just a trip in my mind to the Monday. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah,
2: <laughs> <laughs> Dennis is thinking all these, you know. And my mind's like consecrated beef, huh? <laughs> mm. All right. Well, uh, Dennis and Chris, thank you so much. And uh, I think it's time for a liturgy question.
0: Yeah, better be about the inner workings of sacrifice. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Always. It always is. Mail call. Mail call. Oh, Moses. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? In my case, sir, the question is totally without meaning.
2: Hello, liturgy guys. Hello, Jesse. How's it going?
0: Great. You know, I have three holes in my belly.
2: <laughs> All right, that's a different podcast, different name.
0: Oh man, <laughs> you,
1: you, can, you can put that on the on the uh, appendix
0: to this podcast. <laughs> Any lit- listeners out there want to yeah pray for my uh, recovery from uh, appendicitis and appendix surgery? I'd appreciate it. I'm doing well. It's one one week since the surgery, but prayers welcome. Thank you. Anyway, what do we got today? Uh, we
2: have a question from Wisdom App. And uh, this is great. I'm not really sure what's going on here, but I'll just read the email. Uh, the Wisdom app is a great way to grow listeners while engaging conversations uh, that matter. We're venture-backed. Oh, you know what? I think this is an ad. Sorry. I'm just going to respond to them real quick because they want us to be on their app. All right. Okay, one <laughs> what second. What are you doing, Jesse? Okay. So this is what I just told them. I said, you want a podcast on your platform that navigates the intricacies of sacramental theology from the mind of the Catholic Church and our infinite wisdom and hopes to sanctify mankind and all of creation? So.
0: And
1: they wrote Damn. back. Nothing. Awesome. <laughs>
2: Nothing.
1: Oh, wow. I'd listen to a podcast like that.
2: <laughs> we sure. get all these. You gave them a
0: liturgy we question. We get
1: all
2: these ads all the time, and I just thought. You, they definitely don't want us on their platform. <laughs> like So I never... I responded a while ago. They never uh, They never said anything back. So. Good
1: reply, though.
2: Thank you very much. Um, okay, so we do have a question here from Claire. And uh, Dennis, you, you sent us uh, this question from Claire. And she says, when it comes to reading for Mass, is there an official rubric on who can properly fulfill this role? For example... Is it appropriate for a non-Catholic Christian to proclaim a reading or canter the psalm? What about for weddings and funerals when family members tend to proclaim a reading?
0: Okay, so your uncle mm-hmm. Bob is mm-hmm. a professed Satanist and he wants to come to your wedding. And Bob's your uncle. And he <laughs> wants to read the first reading about, you know, love and Jesus. Mm. What's the word, Chris? Doesn't seem right. Yeah, what do you
1: say? Uh, I think that the one thing that speaks most directly to this is a Vatican a document called the Directory for the Application of Principles and Norms on Ecumenism. Um, and it says, so you can find this on, uh, online, Directory for the Application of Principles and Norms on Ecumenism. I don't know who names these titles over there, but they certainly get to be a mouthful. Anyway, at number 133, it says, the reading of scripture during a Eucharistic celebration in the Catholic church is to be done by members of that church. On exceptional occasions and for a just cause, the bishop of the diocese may permit a member of another church or ecclesial community to take on the task of reader. End quote, 133. So I, what does it say? say, No, that you have to be a member of the Catholic church to be doing the readings. And I would say by extension, any of the other liturgical ministries, uh, but for on an ex- on an uh, by way of exception and for a just cause with a bishop's permission, somebody else can do it.
0: And they're probably imagining some interfaith gathering and they're going to have a common service of some kind. And maybe the Lutheran will read one and the Catholic will read one, and the Methodist will read one, if it's all carefully controlled, right? They're not they're not ruling out like crazy uncles.
1: Well, maybe no, no. This is talking about this is talking about the mass. No, if it were some sort of uh, ecumenical, you know, non-liturgical thing, then then by all means, you know, you could, you could, both participate. But in uh, uh, in the celebration of the mass, in a eucharistic celebration, it should be a Catholic unless these other
0: conditions are met.
2: Dennis, did you have anything you wanted to add? Anything Uh, about the unity candle you wanted to touch (laughs) (laughs) on?
0: Can non-Catholics light the unity candle? (laughs) (laughs) Can Catholics light the unity candle? That's a good question. No, I don't have
2: anything. That's a good one. All right, Claire. uh, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you and God bless.
1: Another episode of Liturgy Guys has mercifully come to an end.
2: Our hosts are Chris Get Out of My Dreams and Into My Carsons, Dennis Big McNamara, and Jesse Yoyo Weiler.
0: Our producers are Michael Don't Be So Coy and Nathan First Round Draft Pickman. Our Epiclesis Inspector
1: is Isabel Ringing.
2: Our Liturgical Bookkeeper is Miss L. Romano. Our Official
0: Aerobics Instructor is Jen Uflect. Our Enforcer of Choral Discipline is Don B Flat. Our Official Rubrics Interpreter is Dewey Neal. Our Self Gift Provider is Kenosis. Our simplicity enforcer is Fran Siskin. And lastly, our crack team of confessors is Dewey Shriveham and Howe. And even though overstalls become understalls when they hear us say it, we are the, the liturgy, liturgy guys. guys.